24. Luke chapter 22 from verse 24. Christ's Last Supper and the First Lord's Supper has just been celebrated. And now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Let's pray once more. Lord, fix our minds now upon your word, we pray. Take away whatever may distract or distress, whatever would confuse or darken, and grant by your spirit light from heaven that we may understand not just what these words mean in themselves, but how they apply to us. Lord, teach us to take from them both the rebukes and the encouragements that our souls need. We ask that you would do this by your Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Even the first Lord's Supper seems to fizzle out. Just when you think that the disciples will be truly impressed by what is going to take place, that they might at last grasp that the Lord Jesus is going to lay down his life, shedding his blood for them, in the face of that awful prospect that one of them will be the betrayer of him, they begin to argue about greatness. What might have been a high point, and is in some respects, is the signal that battle is joined. And from this point on, and through most of these succeeding chapters, until the moment of the resurrection, everything looks grim. Judas is betraying his Lord. The disciples are arguing about greatness, and the cross is looming. The spiritual realities that lie behind these conflicts are being worked out in time, in these places, 
and through these people. And it's important for us, not just with regard to what takes place on the pages of our Bibles, but in our own lives and labours, to keep in mind the fact that what we can immediately see and feel and hear reflects in some measure those spiritual conflicts, those spiritual dynamics which are not immediately evident to us. We are reminded at the end of Ephesians that we we are wrestling not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and we see them very much at work in this section of Luke's gospel as we pick up the threads. The disciples are promised thrones, but there are trials that are now pressing. They've been told that they will have crowns in the future, but there are crosses that they must bear first. The Lord therefore said to Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. But Simon said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And the Lord replies, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. The first thing that we see here is Christ's painful warning. Christ's painful warning. Simon, we have seen, Simon Peter, is so often the mouthpiece for the disciples. Here you might call him the earpiece. He is listening for them all. Christ directs these words particularly to him. And Simon, Simon, even even in our English culture, that repetition communicates something of the intensity of the original When someone calls your name twice to get your attention, you can feel something of its weight. There's affection perhaps communicated in this when you speak someone's name like this. There's concern. It's perhaps notable that he doesn't call him Peter at this point. He is not the rock. He is Simon. And there's weight in these words. He's calling attention from Simon Peter and from us to what he is saying. What does he want Simon and by extension the other disciples to understand? Indeed, Satan has asked for you. The sense is Satan has asked for you all that he may sift you as wheat. Satan wants to get his hands on the disciples in order that he may sift them as wheat. Now there's a little hope here. We're not told that Satan wants to or is able to enter these men the way that he entered Judas. Judas was his creature and these disciples are not. But though he does not have the power over them that he has because Judas has given up his soul to him. Nevertheless, he wants to batter them and he wants to trample them. And his malice towards God's people has not changed. Perhaps at this point there is an extreme malice that is being exercised as he drives toward the point at which, in his mind, he will finally be able to take down Jesus of Nazareth. 
He wants to subject these men to a swift and a violent shaking, the kind of teeth-rattling shaking that, that leaves you utterly confused and disoriented. He wants to take them apart. There is no restraint here. There is no mercy here. There is only this deep-rooted antagonism. Satan has asked for these men. He wants to bring them to broken ruin. He wants to expose them. He wants to cripple them. He wants to bring them down. And if you're not terrified by that, then you should be. Because it is terrifying. And that's why I say we need to be aware of the antagonism and the malice of our adversary. The one who hates God and hates all who belong to God. Satan, the evil one, the father of lies, has a personal animosity against God's people. Even if he cannot destroy you, he wants to damage you. There is no patience, no kindness, no restraint and no reserve in his antagonism toward the kingdom of God. Whatever he can do to you that will hurt you, crush you, cripple you, tear you, hinder you and undo you, he wants to do. But he has to ask. Of whom does that put you in mind? Do you remember when Satan went before God, having gone to and fro on the earth, and said, your servant Job? And what did the Lord say? You may have him in this way, but then you stop. You may do this to him, but no further. The sense is of an arrogant demand. Give these men to me that I may take them into my power and do with them as I will. But then you have to ask, of whom is he making this demand? He is making this demand of the merciful, mighty, good and gracious God of all the earth who has given these people to his son. Christ's painful warning recognises the ultimate control of a good and gracious God, but still brings you and me face to face with the reality of this spiritual antagonism, this deep-rooted and malicious hatred toward the people of God. And it is directed now specifically against the disciples. Perhaps there's a sense that if you can bring these down then God's plan, as Satan thinks he understands it, will be brought to nothing. Echoes here of strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Satan seems to be saying, in effect, once I've got rid of the shepherd, let me be like the wolf and like the lion that will chase these sheep, will tear and rip and destroy. But I have prayed for you. That's stunning. This is Christ's gracious assurance. But I have prayed for you 
that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. Now, you've gone from the singular address, Simon, Simon, to the plural warning, Satan has asked for you all that he may sift you as wheat. Now back to a very specific assurance because he's speaking to and about Simon here. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. Is he singling out Simon as the the human leader of this group of disciples? Is he perhaps conscious, our Lord, that what happens to Simon, given that prominence, his state, his condition, are going to, is going to affect the others? Remember, later on, it's Simon who says, let's go fishing. Where Simon is at is going to have an influence on those who are around him. Maybe he is conscious, our Lord is conscious, that Simon is going to be in some way a particular target of the evil one. But this personal assault calls forth a personal response, and it's emphatic. The evil one, the adversary, the enemy, he has demanded you. But me, I have prayed for you. You see the counterpoint? He's demanded you, but I myself, I have been praying for you. I have been interceding on your behalf. I have been praying, Simon, that your faith should not fail. Now notice what it is for which Christ prays. He does not pray that Simon and the others would be excused the trial, but that they will be preserved through it. He does not pray that they would stand firm and not at all be shaken, but that they would be humbled. He does not pray that they should never sin, but that they would be instructed through their experience. Simon, my prayer is that your faith should not fail, that it should not crumble, crumple and be cast away. That though you may be shaken, that though you may be troubled, that though you may be distressed, that though you must be humbled, that that faith which unites your heart to mine should not fail utterly. It might become very small, very thin, but so long as you have faith in me, your soul is safe and you will hold fast. And so, Simon, that is my primary concern. That's how I am praying for you, that your faith should not fail. And with that, the expectation of answered prayer. And when you have returned to me, not if, not hopefully things might work out, and if they do, then we'll see what happens next. But, Simon, I'm praying for you so that your faith does not fail And when that unfailing faith is again strengthened, when that unfailing faith brings you back, when you literally retrace your steps, when, if you like, you start over and come back to where it all began, when you are lifted up, when you are brought near to me again, strengthen your brothers. 
some of you will have heard me say, and it may feel like cold comfort when I say it, that it may be that one of the reasons why the Lord is carrying you through the deeper waters is that in time to come, you may have some reservoir of wisdom and experience and compassion out of which you might minister to others. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians to comfort one another with the comforts with which they themselves had been comforted. Brash Peter will not be able to minister to others as well as humble Peter. Proud Peter will have less to say to others than Peter cast down and carried near to Jesus Christ. Were it not for the lessons that Peter is going to have to learn, he would not be able to bless others the way that he does. And so as you work your way through the Acts of the Apostles and you see Peter speaking and preaching and standing, you need to remember that were it not for this experience in which the prayers of his Saviour sustained him, he would not be in a position to minister the way that he did. And we've just started reading through some of the, the epistles that Peter wrote. And you need to listen there to some of the things that Peter says because a lot of that comes out of this kind of experience and is communicated with the kind of feeling that only a man who's been through a trial like this will be able to speak. Mark's Gospel is probably Peter's gospel recorded by Mark. Notice two men who know what it is to crumble when the pressure is on, but to be restored by grace. And Peter's gospel is remarkable for the way that it sheds no great light upon Peter himself. Remember, this is the man who is going to write that your adversary the devil goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. How does he know? What enables him to understand what it's like when you are being sifted like wheat, shaken, battered and assaulted in your soul and sometimes in your body? Why is it that this man can say, Humble yourselves before God because God lifts up the humble. It's because he's been through this crucible, because he's been assaulted, because he's been brought low, because Christ has prayed for him. And when he has retraced his steps on account of the intercessions of his beloved Saviour, he is able to strengthen his brothers. What's also remarkable here, I think, is that Christ doesn't say, I'm going to pray for you, Peter. I've, I have prayed that your faith would not fail you. Why have you already been praying that, Lord? Because I already know the trial that you're going to go into. I already know the da danger that you're going to face. I already know. Why? Because I know all things. I know the selfishness that you're going to demonstrate. I know the cowardice that is going to be revealed. But I have 
already been praying for you, that your faith may not fail. I don't know what tomorrow holds for you, brother, sister. I don't know what the rest of this year holds. I don't know what the rest of your life holds. But I do know this, that Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. And it is not so much that I assure you that Christ will pray for you if you get into trouble, but that your Christ has prayed for you in the light of the trouble that has come. You may feel that you are sailing unprepared into a storm that you didn't see coming. The captain of our vessel has already been preparing the ship. Robert Murray McChain said, If I could hear Christ praying in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. I think I can almost go one better. If I'd known that Christ had already prayed for me, I can go anywhere, I can do anything, knowing that my faith will not fail. And should I stumble... He will lift me up. My friends, whatever Simon Peter is going to go into, whatever he is going to face, whatever pressures he will be under, whatever failures may be involved, his faith will not be extinguished (coughs) because his Christ has prayed for him. Now, how should Peter respond? What would you hope that Peter would say? Maybe bring it closer to home. What do you think you would say? Because I'm not sure that I would be any better than Peter at this point. You've got Christ's painful warning. Satan has asked for you all that he might sift you like wheat. You've got Christ's gracious assurance. But I have already prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. And what you would like to say is, Lord, hold me. Lord, keep me. Lord, let me not come into temptation. Do not let me drift away. Do not let me go into a situation. Perhaps even I go back to the Lord's Prayer. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Or again, the language of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's what you'd like to imagine you would do, isn't it? That's what you'd like to hope Peter would do. What does he say? Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. This is wounded pride, isn't it? You're going to be sifted, Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, when you've retraced your steps, Peter, you're going to be beaten back. You're going to suffer. You're going to drift. And you're going to have to return to me. You have to come back by the same way that you first came. And when that happens to you, don't worry, Lord, it's not going to happen to me. 
In Matthew's Gospel, there's that direct comparison that we noted this morning. Even if everybody else goes, I'll be the one who stands firm. You don't need to worry about me, Lord Jesus. He's almost at the point, it seems, of saying, why are you bothering to pray for me? I'll be courageous. I'll stand fast. I'll stand firm. I am ready to go with you. I'll be the one who sticks close, even to prison, even to death. I'm ready to be a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. Nothing will divide me from you. As opposed to, do not let me go. He ignores, it seems, Christ's assurance. He kind of rides over it. He declares his own resilience. Now, bear in mind that Peter means exactly what he says. (laughs) As would you or I, I think, if we'd spoken in that way. Peter is absolutely sincere, but he's got far too high an opinion of himself. It's relatively easy to say that you will stand even to death when you're reclining at a dinner table surrounded by your friends. And we do that, don't we? We sit down with brothers and sisters, maybe it's a Sunday lunch, Maybe it's during the week we get together, we have a coffee and we exhort one another, we encourage one another. Yes, let's stand firm. Let's go and tell people about Jesus Christ. Harder to boast in the garden, isn't it? When the mob turns up. Maybe a few wild swings with the sword. And maybe even then we tell ourselves, well, I did my bit. I mean, I know I ran away, but so did everybody else. But, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep following him. I'll go to prison, even to death. When did Peter find it hardest to boast? When a servant girl said to him, you're one of them. It's not always the spectacular trials that defeat and undo us, is it? It's the subtleties. It's the unexpected sources. Peter's got a long way down to go. Christ knows him better than he knows himself. And Christ knows you and me better than we know ourselves. Bear in mind that our adversary has had who knows how many scores of centuries to work out how to bring down the people of God. So when I'm boasting and saying, I'll stand, even if everybody else departs, I'll hold fast. I'll be the one who will understand my duty in the hour of trial. I'll be the one who will hold to Jesus Christ, even if it means slurs and slanders. I'll be the one who stands firm, even if it feels like the world is rocking on its foundations. I'm willing to suffer the loss of my reputation. I'm willing to be slandered and spat upon and mocked and scorned. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to go to death. My friends, If we think that we can do that in our own strength, what fools we are. If it was true for Peter, who was there with the Christ who had just said to him, I'm going to go to the cross and lay down my life for you, and I'm praying for you, how much more for us? Now, I'm not saying that therefore we tell people, I'm a complete lightweight. Don't trust me. 
I'll be worthless when it comes to the crunch. But I do mean this, that the kind of self-reliant, self-resilient boasting that Peter is involved in here is setting you up for a fall. Simon said to Pete, to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. The last thing then is Christ's sad prediction. I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Why does he call him Peter now? Is there irony here? You rock. You're not the rock that you imagine yourself to be. Is it a reminder, more, more or less subtle, of what he ought to be? I think it's the only time in the whole gospel, apart from when he names him, that he calls him Peter. And in the face of Peter's proud boast, the Lord Jesus makes a very specific and sad prediction. I tell you, Peter... The rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. The sign, the, ro- cr- the, the crowing rooster, the cock that crows. The time, this very day, before the night is out and the fall. Three times you will say that you don't even know me. That's painful, isn't it? The specificity of that prediction. I know when it will occur. I know the circumstances under which it will happen, the precise time and occasion. And I know what you're going to say, Peter. Not once, not twice, but three times. You won't just sort of distance yourself from me a little bit. You won't just not be in the picture. You won't just back away and try and find a quiet place. You will look people in the face and you will tell them, I don't even know who that man is. What has Jesus done knowing that before the cock crows three times this day, Peter is going to say, I don't know him and I've got nothing to do with him. He has prayed for him. That is grace. That is marvellous mercy. Not just a general prediction that Peter, you're, you're going to need to return to me because Satan is going to assault you. Not just that I'm going to keep your faith from from cracking and crumpling altogether. But Peter, you're going to say that you've got nothing to do with me. And in the face of those denials, knowing what is going to take place, Peter, I have already prayed that your faith may not fail. Despite knowing all the details of his failing of his running, of his boasting, of his sinning, of his folly and of his denials. The Lord Christ has been praying for Peter. Are you being shaken?
maybe not to the extent or degree that Satan wanted with regard to these disciples, but is Satan assaulting your faith, my brother, my sister? That's the point of satanic antagonism. That's where Satan will ultimately strike at you. And wherever else and however else he strikes, what he wants to do is, if he could, to damage and to destroy your faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to stir up in you unbelief. He wants to fill you full of doubts and fears. He wants you to call into question the promises and the precepts that the word of God makes plain before you. He wants to drive a wedge between you and your saviour. He wants to get you to the point where you might even be denying that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Are there issues at home that are making you shake? The challenges you face, parents or children, husbands or wives. The things that have taken place in this church that have made you ask whether or not God is really true to his promises, whether or not you can trust Christ and his people, whether or not there's any prospect or any scope for the future. Are you under pressure at work? Perhaps you're being challenged with regard to your testimony. Perhaps someone or someones are chipping away at you. Perhaps the the current of the conversation in the office or the place of work, wherever it may be, is the kind of thing that is is designed to to blaspheme and to dishonour the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And you're there and you're wondering, should I, do I, might I need to say something? How can I? It's going to expose me. It's going to make me a target. You may be at school and you're just trying to keep your head down. You're hoping perhaps that no one really knows what it means for you to be a Christian. You're going out into the world at large. And it may not be that you're just not making known Jesus Christ. You're not not preaching the gospel. No, it's, it's not that you're not preaching the gospel. It's that no one's got any idea that you belong to Jesus Christ. Because it's a lot easier if you at least give the impression that you don't know him. He's nothing to do with you. My friends, in the light of Simon Peter's experience, do not presume and do not despair. Do not presume because Christ's assurance does not dilute his warning. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. It's possible to know that Christ will pray for you and still to strut out in your own strength as if you can manage this by yourself. Christ's warning was real to Simon. Christ's assurance was real to Simon. And Simon seemed to neglect the warning and despise the assurance. My friends, let us not presume upon our standing, lest we should fall. Let us cry out to the Christ who prays for us. Lord, do not leave me. Lead me not into temptation. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
My friends, are you going to go into this week confessing to Jesus Christ that unless he holds you up, you cannot stand? That unless he holds you fast, you will crumble? That unless he, by his spirit, helps you and assists you, you will not be able to speak a word for the Saviour? Not just to the angry neighbour who's aggressively atheistic, not just to the, the thug on the street who looks like he's spit at you or punch you in the head as soon as look at you. Not just that you won't necessarily go out and knock on the doors, but that you might crumble before the equivalent of the serving girl. That you won't even be able to, to say a word when someone says to you, so aren't you one of those Christians? What do you think about that? Do not presume. And do not despair. Because the failures do not undermine or undo the assurance. Because you may not so much be looking forward as looking back and saying, what kind of a Christian am I? I know what Peter's gone through. I understand Simon's stumblings. I've been a coward. I've fudged the issue. I've kept my head down. I've been happy with a general notion that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a God person. And people know that and they're aware of that. But, but I've managed to find a way of navigating through this world so I don't get into too many problems. And if anybody does say, aren't you one of his people? I've learned how to turn it off with a, a little joke. I know how to lighten the mood. I know how to avoid the tension. I know how to sidestep the conflict. And I've done it over and over and over again. There have been times when I've felt my duty, my opportunity, my responsibility to speak a word for Christ my Saviour. Not even to go to prison or to death, but just to own myself a follower of the Lamb and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've blown it. Retrace your steps. Retrace your steps to the Christ who prays for you. To the Christ who can, out of this evil, bring good. Who can use your experience of your weakness and your failings, your foolishnesses, and yes, your sins, to turn these defeats into triumphs. To form afresh in you conviction and courage and determination to be able perhaps to see other younger Christians who are in danger of doing what you have done in the past and to say to them by the grace of God I have learned better than this come with me walk with me stand with me I will teach you I will help you I will instruct you and I will go with you Many of us would never be able to do that with any kind of sympathy or compassion if we didn't know for ourselves the doubts and the fears and the cowardice and the failings that have so often characterised us. My friends, I don't think there's one of us who can point at Simon Peter and say, what a mess, without looking into the mirror of the word 
and seeing that we look a lot like Simon Peter. So what do you do? What do you do with regard to your past failings and what do you do with regard to your future fears? My friends, the only consolation and comfort that I can bring to you is this. Christ has prayed for us. Christ has prayed for us. He is living now to make intercession for each of his people. And this is why we shall endure to the end. So what do you do with all yesterday's guilt? Can you not take it to a praying saviour? What do you do with all today's trouble? Can you not cast it upon him, knowing that he cares for you? Who said that? Oh, that's Peter. What can you do with tomorrow's threats? You take them to Jesus Christ, who has prayed and is praying and ever will pray for you. And whether it's your regrets because of what you've done, or your fears because of where you are, or your doubts because of where you will go. Go to Jesus Christ. Rest upon his intercessions. He is the one who will hold you up and make you to stand. And if you need to retrace your steps, go back to him tonight. And when you have been brought back, strengthen your brothers serve him I think one of the reasons why we don't make the progress we do is we keep getting brought back and then rather than doing something with what we've learned we just slide away again rather than saying now's the time to take the next step now's the time to go in the strength that Christ supplies my friend our bitterest experiences can bring the sweetest fruits as we learn humbly to walk with our God let me close, though, by asking some of you what you're going to do because Christ is not praying for you. How will you stand against the evil one if Christ doesn't pray for you? If you have no relationship with him, if you don't know him, if you cannot rely on him because of this bond of faith, if you are distant from him, if it leaves you utterly exposed, alone and endangered. Why are the sheep safe? Because when the wolf comes, the shepherd puts himself between the sheep and the wolf. Christ puts himself between his flock and the adversary and that is their security. When temptation comes to you, unbeliever, what will you do? When the evil one reaches out to get a grip upon your soul, how will you stand? All your weakness, all your sinfulness, all your foolishness makes you an easy prey for the lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour. Will you cry out to Christ then this night? Oh Lord God, stand for me. Oh Saviour, save me. Oh Preserver, preserve me. Oh Redeemer, redeem me. Great Ransomer, ransom me. Keep me, bless me.
feeble and foolish and foul as I am, cleanse me, hold me, keep me, pray for me. Pray that I might have faith and pray that my faith might not fail. Why was it that we were able to read this morning a man who looked into the eyes of the Saviour and say to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Was that because Peter had somehow got his mojo back? Was that because he'd somehow found some reserves of strength? That he'd looked into the mirror a few times and said to himself, and every day and every way I'm getting stronger and stronger? That he'd managed to rediscover his self-esteem? My friends, the reason why Peter becomes the Peter that he is with his continued sins and follies and restorations and services is that Jesus, his saviour, prayed for him, that his faith would not fail. And so when he retraced his steps, he was able to strengthen his brothers. And so by the grace of God, might we.